This is an ABC podcast. President Trump reaffirmed his policy that US troops will not be involved in Middle East wars, describing America's Kurdish former allies as, quote, no angels. Turkish artillery pummels a Syrian town as its soldiers move in. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan wants to drive Kurdish fighters out and create a so-called safe zone. After years of fighting together against the Islamic State in Syria, the alliance between the United States and the Syrian Kurds is coming unstuck. American air support that has ensured the protection of the Kurdish forces is being withdrawn, and Turkey is moving in to push the Kurds back from the border. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. For over a hundred years, Kurds have sought some form of independence. The region they claim as Kurdistan consists of an extensive plateau and mountain area, spread over large parts of what are today eastern Turkey, northern Iraq, western Iran and northern Syria. Since the first Gulf War in 1991, the Kurds have been a key player in the Middle East, first in Iraq and then in Syria. But who are the Kurds? Where do they live? And why don't they have a homeland? Jean Bajouan is Assistant Professor of History at Missouri State University and the author of Studies in Kurdish History. Kurdish nationalists today trace the origin of the Kurdish community back to ancient times. However, the usage of the term Kurd dates from very late antiquity and the early Islamic period. So it's very difficult to say exactly when Kurds as a sort of self-identified group came into being. However, we do begin to see Kurds being mentioned in Islamic sources in the 8th, 9th and 10th century. So the moment of the inception of the Kurdish community is very hard to pin down, although it seems to be late antiquity and the early Islamic period. So I'm wondering what historically has made the Kurds different from the Turks, Arabs or Persians, the other main ethnic groups in the region. The Kurdish community in early Islamic sources is identified as speaking a different language from the Arabs, but living in a way that was similar to the Arabs, in a nomadic warrior way. And when we compare them to the Persians, often the Kurds are described as the the Bedouins or the nomads of Iran. The community were a group that lived in a geographically separate region. So they they fall within linguistic terms and cultural terms within the family of Iranic peoples or Iranian peoples, but they aren't exactly the same as Persians. Kurds linguistically are related to Persians, but they are a distinct ethnic group. What distinguishes them from other groups, certainly the language, Kurdish is an Indo-European language. Michael Gunter. Professor of Political Science at Tennessee Tech University and the author of numerous books on Kurdish history. What makes an ethnic group, as Ernst Renan, the famous French sociologist in the 19th century said, what makes a a nation is the will to be a nation. In other words, it's what you think you are. And the Kurds have long felt that they do constitute a separate ethnic group based on the fact of where they live in the mountains, their unique language, and various other cultural attributes having to do with their history. 
in the very early Arabic sources pertaining to the Arab conquests of the mountainous regions that constitute what Kurds call Kurdistan today, there are mentions of Christian Kurdish communities and fire worshippers. However, between the 8th and the 11th century, it seems the majority of the Kurdish community adopted the Islamic religion. And so the vast majority of Kurds are Muslims. There are various different types of Islam practiced amongst the Kurdish communities, the majority being Sunni Muslims. But you also have Alevis, which are a, a sect related to Shiism. You have Shias. And then you have some sort of different communities, such as Yazidis. You have some Kurds have adopted evangelical Christianity, although by and large today, Kurds are a Muslim people. For many centuries, the mountainous region inhabited by the Kurds was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. But that all changed at the end of World War I when that empire collapsed and the borders of the Middle East were redrawn by the British and the French. Jean Roach Ilmash Kellish is a senior research fellow in politics at Middlesex University. In the historical region, which is currently under the rule of Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Syria, the Kurds with an estimated 35 million population form the largest ethnic group of the Turks, Arabs and Persian in the Middle East. They are considered the largest ethnic group in the world without a nation state. Their homeland was divided by the British and French colonialists by the Sykes-Picot Agreement during the First World War. And without even informing the Kurds, and they incorporated the largest Kurdish community in Syria, Iraq, and also Turkey and in Iran. As the fourth largest ethnic group in the region, the Kurds were promised some form of autonomy by the British and the French at the end of the war. But that promise was never kept. In 1920, the Treaty of Serbs was signed. The Treaty of Serbs was a treaty imposed on the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War. And within that treaty, there was not a promise of independence, but there was an outline for how Kurds might go about obtaining national self-determination. Now, this was very limited. This was, geographically speaking, only the Kurdish regions of the Ottoman Empire, so not the Kurdish regions of Iran. And even in that context, certain Kurdish-populated regions were assigned to Armenia, which was also promised a state after the First World War. So there was an outline through which the Kurds would, under League of Nations supervision and under the supervision of the Great Powers, have the right to form an autonomous administration within the Ottoman Empire. And then within a year of that, they would have the right to have a plebiscite over whether or not they would like independence from the Ottoman Empire. So there were promises at the end of the First World War, which first of all, recognized the Kurds as a distinct national group. And secondly, provided a pathway for Kurdish self-determination. So what happened to those promises and why were they never kept? Well, the primary reason were the facts on the ground. Prior to the First World War, the main power supporting Kurdish nationalism and Kurdish separatism within the Ottoman Empire was the Russian Empire. And in 1917, the Russian Empire had a revolution and Russia withdrew from the First World War. And this left the Kurds without their main international patron. So at the end of the war, 
although the Ottoman Empire had been defeated, most of the Kurdish region was still under Ottoman control. So when the British and the French and the Ottoman government went to Europe to make peace, the peace treaty that came out, the Treaty of Serfs, did not reflect the dynamics on the ground. It didn't reflect the state of affairs on the ground. It was very easy for the British to separate Iraq and Syria from the Ottoman Empire because at the end of the war, they had occupied those territories. It was easy for them to occupy southern Kurdistan, the southern regions of Kurdish settlement within the province of Mosul because that region had been occupied during the First World War. However, the majority of Ottoman Kurdistan remained under Ottoman control and basically the British and the other great powers were unwilling to intervene to support the creation of a Kurdish state. And the, the Turkish nationalists or the, the Kemalist movement that emerged in the early 1920s was able to consolidate control over the regions of Kurdistan which had remained under Ottoman control at the end of the First World War. And basically the British realized that the Treaty of Serbs was a dead letter and sort of changed the focus of their policy, which became a policy of containing the Soviet Union. And the outcome of this was the Kurdish state that had been promised in the Treaty of Serfs went by the wayside. And a new treaty, the Treaty of Lausanne, was signed in 1923. And this basically made no mention of Kurdish rights or um, self-determination and laid the foundation for the sort of system of nation states that we know today and the political situation where the Kurdish community remains divided amongst sort of various different nation states. The Kurdish population was divided between the nations of Turkey, Iraq, Iran and Syria. And while some connections continued between these four communities, over time they developed significantly different political cultures. But in all four nations, there were ongoing Kurdish uprisings. Jangas Kunesh is an academic specialising in Kurdish politics and is Associate Lecturer at the Open University in the UK. There were some connections and there were radio broadcasts from Baghdad and from Soviet Union. So there was a kind of a Kurdish space, if you like, where Kurdish language was used. There was also a lot of illegal trade people crossing over to Syria, buying goods, bringing them back to Turkey and taking goods from Turkey and sending it to Syria, to Iraq. So there was kind of cultural connections that were there and that continued. But these cultural connections did not develop into a kind of a unified political movement. As a result of that, we have distinct political cultures develop in each part of Kurdish populated territory and distinct political movements emerged. The first Kurdish uprising in modern Turkey occurred immediately, well, within a couple of years after World War I came to an end, even before the formal creation of the Republic of Turkey. And then in 1925 was the famous Sheikh Said rebellion in Turkey. So Turkey had a number of rebellions starting in 1925. The rebellions in Turkey were largely just within Turkey, although there was some outside support from across the border. In Syria, there was a transnational party created called the Koyban, 
the late 1920s and throughout the 30s, which sponsored the second Turkish-Kurdish rebellion around Mar Ararat in the late 1920s. So although there is a sense of pan-Kurdish nationalism, most of the Kurdish rebellions, and there were a number of them in Turkey, Iraq, and Iran, were just in those countries and received minimal but some help from across the border from other Kurds. Well, some Kurds were assimilated into the dominant nationalities of the countries they lived. So some in Turkey and Iraq and Syria came to see themselves as Iraqi or Turkish or Syrian or what have you. Some continued to dream of Kurdish independence, and many sought to achieve some kind of cultural or political autonomy within the different nation-states in which they live. So there's no sort of general tendency, but at different times, sort of different political ideas have, have become dominant. So in the early 1920s and 30s, many Kurds pushed for independence, whereas in the 60s and 70s, most Kurdish movements were seeking some kind of cultural recognition or cultural autonomy within the nation states that they lived. So, for example, in the 1960s, many Kurds took part in the socialist movement in Turkey and Iraq and sought to have the Kurdish question resolved within the context of a broader socialist revolution within those countries. Then in the 1970s and 80s, we see sort of an upswing in separatist nationalism again. And then during the 80s, you had pretty severe Kurdish insurgencies taking place in Turkey, taking place in Iraq, and taking place in Iran. And the outcome of these insurgencies had been brutal repression. So in Turkey, we see the PKK fighting with the Turkish government, and the, the outcome is destruction of thousands of Kurdish villages and political violence on both sides. And then in Iraq, we see at the end of the Gulf War, once the Iranians had ceased their attacks on Iraq, Saddam Hussein continuing to launch genocidal campaigns against the Kurdish population there, many of whom had sided with Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. So the Kurdish movement in the late 1980s was under severe pressure. However, the Gulf War resulted, at least for the Iraqi Kurds, in a complete reversal of this state of affairs and the formation of this autonomous region, which allowed the Kurds of Iraq at least to have some kind of limited self-government. You're listening to Rear Vision. I'm Annabel Quince. We're tracing the story of the Kurdish people and their decades-long struggle for autonomy and a homeland. A few weeks ago, President Bush was riding on the crest of a wave. He'd won the war, he'd confounded the critics, and the troops were coming home. Well, last week it all changed, with the announcement by the President of an open-ended U.S. military commitment to safeguard the mainly Kurdish refugees in northern Iraq. It was really the television pictures that did it. Day after day, the coverage of the fleeing Kurds made President Bush look more and more heartless. No one can see the pictures or hear the accounts of this human suffering and not be deeply moved. I mean, after the brutal attacks of Saddam regime in 1991, France and the United Kingdom and United States used the UN Resolution 688 to establish no-fly zone or uh, zones to protect the Kurds in Kurdistan region of Iraq and Shia population in southern Iraq. Kurdish rebels claim to have taken control of the governorate of Tamim in the north. 
in a broadcast on a clandestine radio station inside the country called The Voice of the People of Kurdistan, they said the entire region was in their control and that it was the most brilliant victory in the contemporary history of the Kurds and Kurdistan. In 1991, when the United States quickly defeated Saddam Hussein, suddenly the Kurds in northern Iraq were on their own and the United States protecting them to some extent with a no-fly zone. And by 1992, the Kurds had organized in northern Iraq a separate government, which was called and still is called the Kurdistan Regional Government of Iraq. And this, of course, had effects on the Kurdish populations in other parts of Kurdistan. Kurdish rebels in Turkey were able to take shelter in Iraqi Kurdish territory, and Kurdish guerrilla groups from Iran were able to take shelter in Iraqi Kurdish territory. And more generally, it provided a kind of beacon of hope, or at least a catalyst for many Kurds who now could see that, you know, there is a possibility, however flawed it was, for some kind of Kurdish self-rule in the Middle East. So after a very demoralizing decade in the 1980s, it, it was a very important morale boost for not just the Kurds of Iraq, but for Kurds across the Middle East. So how did that part of Iraqi Kurdistan function and how successful has it been in terms of creating a region that is autonomous? Well, it's a difficult question. Of course, the, especially during the 1990s, there were severe problems. Firstly, there were external problems. Although not governed by Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi Kurdish region was under the same set of sanctions that the rest of Iraq was under. Now, of course, it had a border with Iran and Turkey, which allowed smuggling. But economically, it was in a very weak position. And politically, it was deeply divided, and Iraq, Turkey, and Iran were able to influence politics there. We have a period of civil war between the two dominant parties in Iraqi Kurdistan, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan and the Kurdistan Democratic Party. And this was deeply shameful for many Kurds that, you know, after this long fight for some kind of self-rule, the Kurdish political parties were fighting with one another. However, after 2003, the economic position of Iraqi Kurdistan improved with Iraq opening up. Iraqi Kurdistan didn't suffer the same kind of violence and disorder the American invasion of Iraq brought about in other parts of the country, so it was able to develop. Although a lot of this development was based on high oil prices, and in many ways the political system of patronage which had existed was continued by the ruling Kurdish political parties in Iraq. However, compared to the rest of Iraq, Iraqi Kurdistan has been fairly successful and, you know, enjoys a certain degree of legitimacy. However, you know, there are still many of the same problems that affect other Middle Eastern states there, particularly corruption, nepotism, and unemployment. You know, Iraqi Kurdistan has a huge state sector in which people are employed, but, you know, getting a job in the state sector requires contacts and connections. Many young Kurdish people are getting disillusioned by the political situation and the economic situation in Iraqi Kurdistan today. But that's no different than we see in other parts of the Middle East. Now, members of the Syrian Kurdish YPG militia have raised their flag over Tel Abiyad and are claiming they have control. It may prove a turning point, choking off resupply lines for Islamic State fighters. The Kurds in Syria were not developed as much in terms of Kurdish consciousness, possibly to a large extent because of the Assad dictatorship, father and son, kept a very close hand on the Kurdish situation. There wasn't much Syrian Kurdish activity until 
the Civil War began in 2011, and that lifted the lid on the situation, and Assad was in so much trouble that suddenly in the summer of 2012, in order to have a chance to defend himself around Damascus, Assad basically pulled most of the Syrian troops out of the Kurdish areas in Syria, and suddenly overnight the Kurdish areas in Syria had no one else to rule them except themselves, and very quickly created their own institutions and began calling themselves Rojava, Western Kurdistan. The main Kurdish political party in Western Kurdistan was the Democratic Union Party, or PYD. The PYD was able to sort of establish an autonomy, but one that's quite different from the autonomy that exists in Iraqi Kurdistan. So Iraqi Kurdistan's autonomy looks very much like a nation state. They have their own flag, their own armed forces, their own symbols, so on and so forth. But the Syrian Kurds developed a more anarchistic system of government, one which made a sort of much stronger play of female emancipation. You have local governments and municipal governments playing a bigger role in political life. And the formation of autonomous cantons based around the different Kurdish towns in northern Syria. So basically the withdrawal of the Assad government left a vacuum which was filled up by the PYD, which basically enacted its political program, which is influenced by American anarchism. The Kurds were left to rule their own territories, and the Kurds then came under attack by Islamists and especially the ISIS. And Kurds were one of the main targets of of ISIS, in fact. Their fight against ISIS brought them into an alliance with the anti-ISIS coalition and the U.S., and this began in, in autumn of uh, 2014 when the Kurdish town of Kobani was surrounded by ISIS and they were attacking the Kurdish forces there and Kurds put up a heroic defense against ISIS and sometimes in, in middle of October 2014, the U.S. started to conduct airstrikes against ISIS and that created more room for working together. Uh, eventually, U.S. troops were stationed in the Kurdish-controlled areas to defeat ISIS, and they worked closely with the Kurds, and they armed the Kurds, they trained the Kurds. So in the context of the war against ISIS, the Kurds gained a lot of international support from the U.S. and the anti-ISIS coalition. The YPJ, or Yapaja is a volunteer militia solely made up of women who take the pledge to defend the Kurdish community of women living in Syria. Its fighters range in age from 18 to 40, but girls as young as 12 sign up for intensive training. It has a reputation for developing strong, independent women, and its recruits are fiercely proud. There have been huge strides in female emancipation. Women now play an important part not only in government but also in the military. So that's been a very important development in the region. There have been experiments in cooperative economics. There have been an adoption of a liberal attitude towards religion and so on and so forth. But of course, this is far from perfect. There's also been repression. So some of the Kurdish political parties in Syria, particularly those that are close to the Iraqi Kurds, have been repressed. 
Although the Kurdish political parties in Syria, the PYD, claims to be decentralized anarchistic political party, they have a strong authoritarian tradition and a strong military tradition. So some on the left perhaps over-idealize the political experiment taking place in Rojava. But in a region in which we are often sort of given the choice between a kind of secular military dictatorship or Islamist government, it's been an interesting third way. And one, the Kurdish region of Syria, Rojava as it's known, has a much better sort of human rights record than the regions under Islamist control or the regions under the control of the Assad regime. The emergence of an independent Kurdish authority in the northern part of Syria, close to the Turkish border, sent the Turkish government into a tailspin. Turkey has the largest number of Kurds within its borders and has been involved in an ongoing struggle with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, since 1984. In Turkey, you had a powerful Turkish state which was determined not to let the Kurds express themselves and potentially break off of Turkey as a separate state. And beginning in 1978, when the PKK was formed, you began to have the beginnings of a struggle, a violent struggle that officially began in August 1984, and with a number of declared ceasefires on the part of the Kurds, and an attempt where the Turks and the Kurds actually negotiated with each other from 2013 to 2015. It's been a a military struggle, an insurgency going on in southeastern Turkey with even some Kurdish actions in the West. And there was a time when the current Turkish president, President Erdogan, when he was actually determined to fix or come to terms with the sort of whole Kurdish question in Turkey. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. Erdogan's first decade or so of rule, he, I think, honestly was trying to solve the Kurdish problem in a way that would satisfy the Kurds to a large extent and is on record as having said that we have a Kurdish problem and we are determined to solve it and we are going to solve it by more and more democracy, but gradually changing his position when it became clear domestically that such a position was not a political winner for him. And beginning in 2015, when the pro-Kurdish party HDP in Turkey won enough seats in the Turkish parliament to cost Erdogan his majority in parliament, Erdogan basically switched and became a altered Turkish nationalist largely for his own domestic power reasons. And that I find very disappointing because Erdogan gave up the attempt to solve the Kurdish problem and went back to using the fist instead. The withdrawal of US military equipment from this war-ravaged region has already begun. Many Kurds believe they've been abandoned. Anyone who counts on America is a person who knows nothing. If we look at history, we see that it's always betraying its allies, and today, it's betraying us. The Kurds are in a very difficult situation. For example, the necessity of the Turkish intervention and sort of the unreliability of U.S. policy, which seems to be increasingly chaotic, has meant that they have had no choice but to reach out to Assad and the Russians. However, the Kurds do not have 
too much faith in the Russians either. Because, again, as I mentioned earlier, in 2018, the region of Afrin, which was Kurdish-held, was invaded by Turkey in a kind of dry run for what we're seeing now. And the reason the Turks were able to invade Afrin was because the Russians withdrew and allowed Turkey to move in, which resulted in a huge outflow of Kurdish refugees who had to flee their homes, led to, you know, murders, property thefts, and Turkey even stole the whole region's olive harvest. So the Kurds, they may not be trusting the United States at the moment, but they also don't have too much trust in Russia either. So they're in a very difficult position because they have very few international supporters. It's a very similar situation in some ways to the end of the First World War, where Kurdish nationalists did not have an external power that was willing to support them. Jean Bajuan, Assistant Professor of History at Missouri State University. My other guest, Michael Gunter, Professor of Political Science at Tennessee Tech University. Jangus Gunesh, an academic specialising in Kurdish politics. And Jean Roach Ilmash Kelish, Senior Research Fellow in Politics, Middlesex University. The sound engineer is Simon Branthwaite. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.